I'm going to read Exodus chapter 16. I'm going to read verses 1 through 21, so quite a few verses, and then we'll get started. Uh, We'll pray and ask the Lord to help us. Verse 1 of Exodus 16, they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came up from the wilderness of sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation, the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them at twilight, you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was a There was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it until morning and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, these incredible uh, gospel pictures. God, thank you for these gospel lessons. Thank you, Father, for um, just the way that you teach us, both through uh, adversity and trial and also through through success and good things. Father, I I pray that you would give us a heart of trust, give us a heart of faith. God, forgive us when we grumble. God, I, I pray that you would root that out of us this morning and God, replace it with, a strong conviction that if God is for us, then who can be against us? Father, we ask that you would do that in us today. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. I think if you've been reading through uh, Exodus with us, if you've been here the last couple weeks, I think probably it is pretty startling 
how quickly we as people, we as, uh, as, as men and women and students, how quickly we can go from victory to discontent. Um, so if, you, if you're just looking at the chapters laid out in front of us, most all of chapter 15 is a victorious uh, rally song to the Lord, okay? So, so if you remember, uh, God brought them out of Egypt with these incredible plagues. He brings them to the edge of the Red Sea. This was last week. Um, the Egyptian army is behind them. God, God tells them, stand and see the salvation of the Lord. He tells Moses to hold out his hand, his staff over the water, and the sea parts, and they go through on dry land. The Egyptian army follows them. God brings back the sea, and the Egyptian army is destroyed. And on the other side of the sea, they, they, they spend a chapter there in chapter 15 just praising God for his victory, praising God for his, his goodness, for, for, for his, his power and his might and his glory that is beyond imagination. And then three days later, okay, we know exactly how long it was. Chapter 15, verse 22, says Moses made Israel, uh, set Israel out from, from the Red Sea and they went to the wilderness of Shur. And then they went about three days into the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled, all right? Like it already starts, like three days, okay? They, they witnessed the awesome, phenomenal power of God. They, they have this, this amazing worship service where they together shout the praises of God. And then three days later, they're already grumbling against God. And then God provides sweet water there and brings them to this place of 12 springs and 70 palms. That's at the end of chapter 15. And then a month later, okay, so it's a month later now, in chapter 16, one month later, they're, they're, they're out in the wilderness, they, they run out of food, and, and immediately they begin to grumble against God. They begin to accuse Moses of bringing them out into the wilderness to kill them. They begin to despair and, and regret their decision to follow God. And, and then as we're gonna see, God feeds them with manna from heaven. And then in chapter 17, all right, they, they move forward a little ways further. Again, they, they come to a place where there is no water, which they're in the desert. This can happen a lot, right? They're in the desert, okay? They're in the wilderness. And, and all of a sudden, once again, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock and our thirst? That's 17 chapter three. And, and you're gonna see this pattern over and over and over again. And I want you to marvel at these Israelites who so quickly fall into grumbling, Okay. And maybe we shouldn't just marvel at the Israelites. Maybe we should also marvel at ourselves, okay? Uh, at how quickly we can go from, from trusting God and celebrating God and enjoying God to all of a sudden it's all falling apart and we're discontented. And one of the things that we learn uh, as, we, as we follow the children of Israel through the wilderness is that grumbling is a heart problem, not a circumstance problem, okay? I, I know we all wanna pin it on circumstances. We all wanna pin it on flat tires and sick kids and financial problems and the economy, and, and we all want to pin it on all those other things, but man, as, as, we, as we go through the Israelite story and as we see God deliver them again and again and again in these phenomenal ways, it becomes really clear it's not a circumstance problem, it's a heart problem, because you see, if it's a heart problem, then it's like a virus, you know? It's like a virus is in your body, and every time you get weak, it just it manifests itself. And that's exactly what is happening in, in, with the Israelites. Like, it's in them. It's a heart problem. It is a heart of unbelief and discontent against God, a lack of joy in God that displays itself every time there is a trial, all right? And so when, in looking at it that way, in looking at grumbling as, as simply this symptom, this, this manifestation of a heart that, that is not 
convinced that God is for us, that is not convinced in the glory of God, okay, then that helps us to attack the right thing. It helps us to, to, to deal with the right thing in our heart. And so let, let's, let's examine this, this Israelite grumbling and let's make some applications for ourselves, okay? So three things, three big things I want you to see, and then we'll, we'll do a whole bunch of stuff just on, on grumbling, okay? So first of all, Notice that in their grumbling, there is an assumption that if God allows lack or need, that his intention is to destroy us, all right? So, so there's this clear assumption in the Israelite grumbling that anytime there's a hard thing, that they jump to the conclusion that God must not be for us, that God must not be with us, that God must not be have our back, okay? If you'll notice chapter 16, verse three, he says, for you, they say, for you brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Again, in chapter 17, in verse three, but the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us? Isn't that a big jump to make, you know? I mean, isn't that a, a, a big distance to span there? To, to go from, all right, God, you are our deliverer. We praise you. You're the God that brought us out of Egypt. You're the God that's rescued us. You're the God that's gonna save us. And then all of a sudden, there's a trial. There's a struggle. There's a difficulty. There's something that they can't see how they're gonna solve. And they jump to, God, you must not be for us. Like, you must have brought us out here to do us bad, to do us harm and not good. They're not convinced that God is for them. Even though God has promised them that he would deliver them, even though God has displayed his glory time and time again in their hearts, they do not yet trust God. It's why they're in the wilderness, right? It is why there's gonna be 40 years of this, 40 years of them learning to trust that God indeed is for them. And God's gonna bring them out in the wilderness and he's gonna patiently display his provision and his goodness that they might learn not to ride this roller coaster ride of feeling loved by God when things are good and, and, and that God is not for me when things are bad, all right? And, and, and listen, for the Israelites, what should they have been doing? They should have been looking back, right? They should have been looking back and saying, okay, if, if God promised to Abraham that he would, he would, have many descendants, and those descendants would become a nation, and that nation would have a land. And if God has fulfilled all those promises, then you know what? He's going to take care of us too, right? They should have looked back to the plagues of Egypt and said, look at, that. Look at God's strong arm in delivering us. They should have looked back to uh, the Red Sea, right? They, they should have always been looking back to these milestones in which God had shown himself faithful. But for us, there is something much bigger, okay? It's cool for you to look back to that. I mean, that, that's why we, in our children's ministry and team kid, we're always teaching the glorious deeds of the Lord, right? We, we want our kids to know those stories. I want you to know those stories. I want you to know what God has done in his people, okay? But even more importantly for you and I, we, we look to something monumentally greater. We look to the cross. We look to God sending his only son to live the life that we couldn't live, to, to die a death on the cross, to pay for our sins, to rise from the dead. You see, that, that's what we should look back to. Anytime you hit this hard thing in your life, anytime you hit this, this, this struggle, this difficulty, this painful thing that you don't know how it's gonna end, you need to look to the cross. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How, how do you know that God loves you? It, it is not by saying, hey, I've got an easy life. I've had a smooth life. Nothing bad has happened. It, it, that's not how you know God loves you. You know God loves you because God sent his son to be butchered on a cross that you would have life with him forever. Okay, that's how we know that God loves us. In Romans 8, 
Paul does this beautiful, logical progression, okay? And, and here's what he says in, in Romans 8. He says in Romans 8, 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us, okay? And now he's gonna prove, he's gonna prove to you that God is for you, okay? Here's how he does it. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Okay, do you see what, what Paul does there? He argues from the greater to the lesser, okay? His argument is, look, if God has done this, if God did not spare his own son, but God delivered Jesus to be butchered on a cross in order that you might have life to purchase you, if God has done that for you, if he's done the greater thing for you, you can be confident that he'll do the lesser thing, okay? Do you understand Paul's reasoning there? It would be the equivalent of if you look around in this room uh, right now and you see your friend who when you were in need, when you were in a financial bind, they showed up at your house with a briefcase and you opened up the briefcase and, and you'd been praying and you opened up the briefcase and there was $100,000. And your friend said to you, said, friend, I just, wanna, I just want you to have this. Um, I, I, you know, pay it back whenever you can. And you know what? If you never do, that's okay. Uh, but no interest. I, I just, God led me and here's $100,000. I hope this gets you guys out of your bind, okay? If that friend is in the room, first of all, we'd like to know who he is or she, okay? Uh, that would be good if you could just subtly point that way. Uh, that would be wonderful. But if that friend is in the room, okay? And if today, if today you need, I don't know, a mint or gum, you got coffee breath or, you know, you just forgot to brush your teeth and, and you're just looking around like, who would give me a mint, you know? Okay, probably that guy, right? Like, like probably that, like what's our logic there? You know what, if this guy will show up at my house and give me $100,000, you know, just because he loves me, he'll probably, he'll probably part with one of his mints, you know? He'll, he'd probably give me a glass of water. He'd probably buy my lunch today, right? You argue from the greater to the lesser. If Jesus Christ came, if God didn't spare his only only son for you to give you life. How will he not also graciously give us all things? And so when you're in that moment of, gosh, things are bad right now. Man, things are rough. I don't know how it's going to end. Like, like, it's okay to doubt. I don't know how it's going to end because we don't know how it's going to end in this life, right? It's okay to, to doubt. I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring, but, but it's not okay to say, man, I... I I don't know that God's for me. It's not okay to say, I don't know that God has a good plan. No, those things are set in the concrete of the cross. Like they're there, they're established. God is for us. He is. And the Israelites had to learn that. They, they weren't convinced of that. And so every trial, every struggle, every, every difficulty, it resulted in this this crisis of why you brought us out here to kill us, you know? This was a mistake. We shouldn't have come out. Right? There's no way to live the Christian life that way. There's some great verses that show this. And, and here's the statement I want to make to you, okay? When you have a heart of faith toward God, you interpret your circumstances in light of the love of God rather than interpreting the love of God based on your circumstances. See, don't, don't do the second thing. 
Don't, don't interpret the love of God based on your circumstances. Don't, don't say, man, I was born with this disease and so God must not love me. Or man, I lost my, my mother in a, in a car accident when I was little, so God must not love me. Or I, I have this, my, my business is, is lost and, and I'm gonna have to go bankrupt, so God must not love me. Don't, don't interpret the love of God by your circumstances, but rather interpret your circumstances by the love of God. And so begin to look at your circumstances and say, well, man, I don't know why this has happened, but I'm convinced of the love of God. And so I want to look at my circumstances through the lens of the love of God. There's some great examples of men doing this in the scripture, people doing this in the scripture. One of my favorites is Psalm 8411, and it says this. This is right on the heels of that great verse. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. But verse 11 says, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. And then listen to this statement. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. All right, now you have to ask yourself, what, what, how was the psalmist saying that, okay? What, was he this super blessed guy that never had one problem in his life, never had one tragedy, never had one struggle, never had one difficulty? And he's, he's saying, man, I'm just giving you all testimony here. I've had nothing but good things in my life. That's not the way I read that. Uh, if you read the rest of the Psalms, it would be incredibly hard to read it that way, okay? Let, let's, let's think about it again. What else might he be saying? For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So I think the way to interpret that is, if God has withheld something from me, it must not be good, <laughs> Like, it must not be good for me. Like, like, God has this purpose and plan, this beautiful redemption that he's moving me toward. And, and so whatever God has withheld or given, it, it is for the purpose of that plan. It is for the purpose of that, that glory to come. And that, that's how the Israelites were supposed to interpret their circumstances. God's like, I'm bringing you here. I'm, I'm bringing you out. I'm making you a people. I'm bringing you. But, but we have to go through these hard things first in order to get there. But all the hard things are actually gonna produce a people that are fit for the promised land. Number two, second of all, their unbelief affected what they valued. Or I wanna use the word preferred because we're gonna tie it to Hebrews 11 here in a second. But, but what I mean by that is that faith is deeply intertwined with what we value. Okay, so the, the point I'm trying to get at is when, when we look at their grumbling, grumbling what, what we see is, is that their unbelief, it displays, it reveals that, that they don't value the right things, okay? Faith and value are, are tied together, all right? If you've been to Lincoln very long, I, I hope you've heard us say things like that. I hope, I hope you've heard us preach things like that. It's one of the reasons that we love the Matthew 13, 44, and 45 passage where, where Jesus says, here's what the kingdom of heaven's like. It's like a guy who's walking through a field and he finds a treasure of great value, just astronomical value. And, and, and he opens it up and he sees it and he closes it and he covers it up and he goes and he sells everything that he has. So everything else in his life that he used to value, he, he gets rid of that, he liquidates it in order to have the treasure. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like that. That's what it's like. And the next one is a similar parable. It's a pearl of great price. A pearl dealer's out and he finds a pearl that's so valued that he goes back and sells everything that he has in order to buy that one, that one pearl. It's of that much value. And what Jesus is teaching us is that's one of the characteristics of faith is, is seeing the value of Jesus, the value of the kingdom of God, okay? But, but essentially what the Israelites are saying here is that we'd rather go back to Egypt. 
We prefer slavery in Egypt to the wilderness with God. Isn't that exactly what they said? Look at verse three. And the people, chapter 16. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate the bread, ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill the whole city. We, we, man, I, they were like, we wish we were still in Egypt. That's a value statement, Right? That, that's, a, that's a preferring. They're saying, you know what? This following God in the wilderness, it's too hard. I'd, I'd rather have a comfortable uh, life in Egypt and be lost and not be delivered than I would have this hard life in the wilderness having to trust God. Okay, now, I want to show you something that I felt was really beautiful, okay? When, when you read Hebrews 11 and it talks about Moses, it says the opposite thing, Okay? So the Israelites just said, man, we'd, we'd rather have Egypt than God. We, we'd rather have slavery in Egypt than we would have the wealth that God has promised. Okay, now look at what Moses said in Hebrews 11. So Hebrews 11 is that great chapter of faith. If you're, if you're going to Wednesday night team kid program, uh, that's what the whole, whole semester is gonna be on, is walking through God's story in Hebrews 11. All right, but, but here's, here's what it says about Moses. All right, I'm gonna pick up reading in, in Hebrews eleven twenty four. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Okay, if you remember the story of Moses, uh, he's born, uh, his parents hide him, right? They're, they're killing all the baby boy, the Israelite boys in Egypt. His parents hide him. They can't hide him anymore. They put him in a basket, put him in the river. He floats in front of Pharaoh's daughter. She has baby fever, scoops him up. I want this one, you know, keeps him. He grows up in the palace, okay? And so, so the context is very important there, okay? And, and next verse, verse 25. Choosing, okay, this is what Moses did. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. All right, do you see that? Moses would rather be mistreated with God's people. He'd rather be with the slave nation than he would be in the palace, okay? Next verse, verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward, all right? So door number one for Moses, palace life in Egypt, all right? Parties, wealth, extravagance, lavishness. You're, 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 you're the wealthiest of the wealthy in the world, okay? That's door number one for, for Moses. Door number two for Moses, you identify with a slave nation and you wander in the wilderness with a bunch of complainers the rest of your life, okay? Door number one, door number two. Moses says, I'll take number two. Why would he take number two? Is he, is he some kind of monk, you know, that has this, you know, desire to, to afflict himself and, you know, have a bad life? No, 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 no. It's, it's the other. You got to engage faith in this. It says, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. He's looking to the reward. Moses says, door number two has the treasure. Door number two has the gold. Door number two has the riches. How do you see that? only by faith. Do the Hebrews, do the Israelites, do they see that in Exodus 16? They do not. They don't see it. They're saying, hey, at least we had supper, you know, in Egypt. We ain't got that out here. There's no, there's no wealth in following God. There's no riches in following God. One of the things that uh, we're gonna go over and over again on on Wednesday night. In fact, we're memorizing this verse 
is Hebrews 11.6, and here's what it says about the nature of faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Guys, that is at the very heart of what faith is. It's this conviction that what God has for me is good, okay? Which is easy to believe on the, in the high times of our life. But, but in the low times of our life, that's when, can we grab onto that then? What he has for me is good. What do you consider to be the greater wealth? Number three, unbelief expects immediate reward instead of trusting and persevering and waiting for the reward. You know what seems like would have worked? It seems like that if the promised land would have been five miles outside of Egypt, they might have made it, right? Like if it had been a suburb of Egypt, maybe they, maybe they could have made it, you know? But they just did not have, and again, again, this comes back to faith. They did not have the capacity to see from afar. Here's, here's what faith enables you to do. It enables you to see from afar, the, the reward and the goodness and the glory of God and, and to patiently endure for it. Let me prove that to you. Again, Hebrews 11, this time talking about Abraham. I'm gonna pick up reading in, uh, let's see, maybe uh, 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. It says of Abraham that he saw the promise from afar, and, and, and he persevered his entire life, grabbing on to that reward that God would have for him. As that's faith. And when we can do that, when, when we can grab on to, to the, what God has for us is better, that, that, that it's coming for us, that we can trust him, that he's for us, that, he, that he's sent us on the cross to nail that down in our lives, when, when we can grab onto that, we can endure hard things with, without doubting and grumbling against God. All right, I wanna point out just some very practical things about grumbling to kind of shape this thing out. Um, first of all, notice that when, when the Israelites are grumbling against Moses, they're actually grumbling against God, okay? So in verse seven of chapter 16, it says, in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. Hold on, they were grumbling against Moses. No, he says, you're really grumbling against the Lord. For what, we, for what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Now, I don't wanna make some kind of general statement that you're gonna try to find an exception to. Maybe there is an exception, probably, I don't know. Um, that's really not my point this morning, but my point is this. Many times when we find ourselves grumbling against people, against circumstances, against job, against finances, we're actually grumbling against God, okay? That, that is... That is the most unpopular thing that I could have said today, is it not? 
Like, because we do not want to believe that. We always want to believe it, it is this person, it's their fault, it's this circumstance, it's this whatever. That, that, and, and again, you may have an exception. That's great. Work that out in your small group. But I'm just telling you that Exodus 16 clearly says, you're grumbling against Moses, you're really grumbling against God. Because it was God's plan and purpose that had them there, right? I want you to notice also about grumbling that a heart of grumbling, okay? So when you find yourself in a season of grumbling, okay, what you're gonna find is that your reality will be distorted. You will not see things clearly, okay? So, so notice, notice again, like, um, let's see, it's uh, verse three. Uh, in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. All right, just, just reading that, like what, what would you think what would you think their life in Egypt was, was like? I mean, you would think it was like Traeger Grill in the backyard, Panera Bread was around the corner, right? Like, like that, that's what, it, that's what they're portraying it as it was. Was that what life in Egypt was like? Like, I, I think you're forgetting some things. Like, like oh, hey, hey what, what, what about all those baby boys being slaughtered by Pharaoh, you know? Hey, hey, what about the taskmasters and the brick and the whips and the crying out to God for 400 years. But now all of a sudden, in this, in this state, this season of grumbling, they look back and reality is distorted. I would make the case for you that sin always distorts reality. If you've ever been around somebody really angry, you, you, will, you will find something. They do not see things clearly, okay? A- anger is a, anger is a temporary insanity, Okay? Some people laughing over here because I, I have a great illustration of this from yesterday, but I can't tell it. It just wouldn't be appropriate, but many people know it, and so they're giggling. But yeah, and it wasn't me either. I was the calm and cool one, okay? Uh, listen, when you find yourself grumbling, please realize you're probably not seeing your family right. You're probably not seeing your finances right. You're probably not seeing your life situation right. Like, like like, just, just keep that in your mind, that, that grumbling distorts reality, which is why it's so important that we, we do the thing that, that, that we saw last week. So if you remember last week, they hit the Red Sea, right? And, and what do they do? They're like, ah, you know, God's come to kill us. We're all gonna die. We're not gonna make it, you know? And, and in Psalm 106, it says, here, here was the problem, okay? So Psalm 106 is a commentary on Exodus 14, and it says this, it says in verse seven, our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but they rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea, okay? So, so two things caused their rebellion. They didn't consider his wondrous works. They didn't remember his steadfast love. And, and one of the things that, that causes a season of grumbling, these, these episodes of grumbling where we distort reality and we're not seeing things rightly and we have a heart of unbelief is that we are not remembering Okay, we're not considering and remembering. So, so again, like, what should you consider and remember? Well, all the glorious deeds of the Lord. Okay, for us as believers, as Christians, absolutely, the cross, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that, that resulted in the cross, that resulted in the resurrection, that resulted in you being joined to Jesus' resurrection life forevermore in an eternal new heavens and new earth. Okay, absolutely. But I would even go further. You should remember the glorious deeds in your own story. Shouldn't you? You know, one of the things that Israel did that was really healthy through this time period, every time God would do something incredible, they would stack rocks up, 
You know, it was like a big monument of rocks. And every time they would walk past the rock, here's what God told them. Every time you walk past the rock, you tell your son what happened there. You tell your daughter what happened there. You tell them they're to tell their kids what happened there. Man, you, you need the same thing in your own life. You need to tell the stories. Man, we've got those stories in our own family kind of legacy. You know, college. Uh, Emma's got this, this heart condition that just caused her an incredible amount of pain. And, and we, we were in a prayer meeting getting ready to go out onto the streets of Springfield, Missouri and share the gospel. And so we are intently as college students you know, asking God, help us, help us, help us. And, and, and Emma has one of those episodes. And one of the guys in the group said, man, I just feel like we need to stop everything and pray for her right now. We stopped everything and we prayed for her. And there's this release that happens inside of her. Like she feels it. And, and she hasn't had a problem since. That's like 30 years ago, right? Man, the Philippians 4.19 story, I, I probably told this story more than any other story because it was so, it was just so cool. So uh, we're, at, we're at Southern Baptist University. We've run out of money, which happened a lot in our early years. You're gonna see a theme in our life and it's the Dirks run out of money. Like that was, fortunately, we're kind of past that, I hope, pray, praise God. But anyway, that was a pretty big season in our life. And we'd run out of money. I'm at the prayer chapel at SBU and I'm, I'm reading, I'm just doing my Bible reading. I'm waiting for Emma to get off work. I'm doing my Bible reading, Philippians 4.19. I read the verse, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And I, I just, I remember closing my Bible and say, okay, God, you know, I believe you're gonna do it. Uh, you know, I don't know how, but I, I trust you. Thank you for that verse. Thank you for that confidence. Uh, I get up, I walk up the hill to the business office. I go in the business office. There's a lady that I do not know. says, Jason, hey, come over here. Oh, how do you know me? I go over there. She's like, your check came in. My check came in from the Missouri grant. I was like, what's the Missouri grant? She tells me what the Missouri grant is. I said, I didn't apply. She's like, yeah, I know it's strange. I was like, what's the middle of the year? Do they usually come in the middle of the year? She's like, no, never. I don't know why this one did, you know? And, and man, like that was enough to get us through that semester. We go to Midwestern Seminary. Uh, again, we're out of money. We had to take our girls to the, to the doctor for something. We didn't have insurance. We had to pay out of pocket. We're out of money. We're, we're driving back to our, our apartment. We don't know anybody in Kansas City. I think maybe, maybe just like the admissions people, but this is like right after we've moved in. We, we go downstairs, we're walking downstairs, carrying the kids downstairs. We, we come to our door, there's an envelope on our door, taped on our door, full of cash. No note, no signature to this day, have no idea who did that, who would know, I don't know, God put it there. Like we have those stories. I'm assuming you have stories like that. Kind of our whole journey from with Asher, you know, and, and for five years was kind of one thing after another of God providing and opening a door, and it looked like it was done, it was over. You know, there's there's no hope, and then God provides again and again and again. I hope you have those stories. If you have those stories, tell them, okay? Tell them to your kids. Tell them to your family. Remember what God has done. In fact, as God provides manna here in, in, in Exodus 16, you know what he does? He says, keep some of it. Now, first of all, that was weird because he told them, don't keep any of it each day because if you do, it's gonna stink. It's gonna breed worms, right? But, he's, but he makes an exception. He says, put some in a jar and you're gonna put it. Later, they would put it in the tabernacle and then later in the temple in the Ark of the Covenant. And they're to remember for, for millennia, for, for hundreds of years, for decades, they're, uh, centuries, they're to remember what God did in the wilderness. Okay, that's in verse 32 if you wanna read it. Folks, marvel. Marvel at God's goodness in his provision. Let me ask you this. How do you respond when people gripe about you? 
okay? How do you respond when they grumble about you, okay? So, so you hear it, you know? Man, that Jason, this is what I hate about him. This is how he has let me down, okay? Now, here's the interesting thing. We, we hear some of that, don't we? I've got a file in my office, actually, with cards. Uh, I have a file with good cards, and I have a file with the other kind. And I think both are useful. Both are good to remember. Depends on if you're feeling prideful or despairing, which one you read. We hear some of that, right? You hear some from your family, right? Have you ever thought about this? We hear a fraction of it. I know that's kind of bad news, but you have no idea how much people grumble about you. Like, you... Like, whatever you hear is a fraction of what the reality is, right? Like, like if, if you heard all of it, like, like every time somebody left your place of work and was, you know, disgruntled about something and shared it, I mean, isn't it great that you don't know all that? And can you imagine? God knows every murmuring quip, every phrase, every disgruntled thought, he knows all of them. How do you handle it when people grumble against you? You're gracious and merciful and kind, and you lavish goodness on them. Thank you for being so Christ-like, because that's exactly how Jesus does it. That's exactly how God does it. Here, here these guys are murmuring and grumbling in the wilderness, and what does God do? You'd think he'd rain judgment on them. He rains bread on them. He rains manna on them. Let's, let's talk about it just for a few minutes. They're in a wilderness, a desert, a place where there's no food or water, and God intentionally brings them there. Why? So he can take care of them. God is a master of provision, is he not? Able to provide for you. He has this endless supply of all that you need. One of the beautiful little phrases that occurs over and over in this chapter is just the abundance of God's provision. So verse 8 God, when God is describing the manna, he says, you're gonna have bread to the full. In verse 12, he says, you're gonna be filled with bread. In verse 16, he says, it's gonna be as much as he can eat. Verse 18, he's to gather, he's to have no lack and he's to gather as much as he can eat. Verse 21, as much as he can eat. When some of you go to visit Dr. Kirkendall, you may wanna have those just armed in your Bible, like bring it in. Um, that would be, I'm sorry, Doc, that's, that's mean, I know. He's gonna tell you not to eat as much as you can eat, okay? But for, manna must have been, it must have been vegetarian, I, I guess, I don't know. I mean, it's called bread, you know? Uh, but uh, they ate bread and meat, and, but it, it was, it, evidently it was really good for you, okay? Because you could eat as much as you could eat, and they were still healthy. They made it through the wilderness, or actually they all died in the wilderness. Oh, there's some, okay, anyway, uh, <laughs> Man, I, I really got off on that. I, I really rabbit trailed, sorry. Um, my initial point before I made a mess was God is lavishly good, okay? God is lavishly generous, okay? He can satisfy your soul. He's a good father. He knows what you need. That's what all those phrases are saying. God is able to meet your need. And he does so that you might know him. You hear that? That you might know God. Over and over again, Exodus 16, 12. I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Why, why is he feed them? That you would know, that you would know that God is the Lord. One of the things you're gonna see in this whole process is that knowing God 
you knowing God, you not going to hell, you learning to trust God is of higher value than your comforts. Isn't that interesting? I know, I know a lot of times we don't want that to be the case, but it certainly is here. Like he says, I'm gonna put you in the wilderness and I'm gonna provide for you that you would know the Lord, that you would see his glory. Really, Paul said some similar things to that. In 2 Corinthians 12, where he talks about the thorn in the flesh, remember what he says? He says, what God told him, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient. Paul, I'm putting you here. I'm leaving you here. Why? So that you'll know that my grace is sufficient for you. And the entire time, God sustains him. It's interesting to me in verse 19 that they're to collect only enough for the day. Um, Most of you, uh, you like to buy your groceries in as large of an amount as you can afford, right? Uh, There's probably... There's probably not very many people that like to go to Walmart every day. Like, like, hey, I'm going to Walmart to get our breakfast for this morning. No, what do you want to do? You want to, you want to, you want to have enough so you don't have to go back, right? And, and isn't it awesome that God could have provided that way? God absolutely could have provided month by month. Year. He could have given him a 40-year supply, couldn't he? Like, like he could have, he could have actually just sustained their bodies. Like we see that other places in the scripture. But instead, God puts in place this system where he only gives enough for each day and they have to go gather it each day. You think he's teaching us something there? I think he is. I think he's teaching you that that you need to come to Jesus every day. I'm I'm gonna show you here in just a second. Jesus is the manna, okay? I'm gonna show you that in John 6. Before we get to that, let's make an application right now. You, You need to come to Jesus every day. Oh, let's just go there now. I can't help it. Whatever I was gonna say, it's not as important as this. All right, so I'm gonna start reading in John 6, 31. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. He's talking about himself. For the bread of God is he who comes from heaven and gives life to the world. Then he said to them, sir, give us, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Okay, now now backfill all that we just learned about manna to Jesus, right? He is your life. He is your life. You need him. You need to come to him day by day and receive all that you need. It's not one of those deals where you come on Sunday and you get seven days worth, you know? Like you just fill up for the week and you don't need to think about Jesus again. That's foolish. That's not the way it works. He is your life. Life is not in money. Life is not in your career. Life is not in athletic accomplishment. Life is not in relationships with the right people. Life is in Jesus. He is the manna. And we must, we must learn to go to him day by day to be satisfied by him. He is our life. Deuteronomy chapter eight, Moses is unpacking what happened in the wilderness. He's preaching a sermon. He says this. He says, God humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that you might, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus is the word. We, we live by him. Do you have him today? I, I just want to ask you real quick, uh, show, what's your value system? 
Like, like, like think through that. Like, like what is your value system? What, where do you value God in this equation? I'm telling you, the higher you value him, the more you will be able to persevere through the difficult things in life. The more you will be able to have joy, no matter your circumstance, the more you'll be able to see from afar what he's got for you. Be convinced today he is for you. He is for you. He is your life. He is our bread. Let's pray. Father, thank you for for your provision, God, for your incredible provision just in the moment-by-moment days of our life. God, thank you for the stories in this room that that would recount how you have taken care of us and how you've provided for us and how you've healed and how you've sustained and how you've carried us and, God, the good things that you've done. But, Father, we, we pray, Father, that you would just impress upon our hearts the beauty of the cross, the beauty of your incarnation, of your coming out of heaven and becoming man and living the perfect life in our place and dying a death on the cross that we might live. Father in heaven, please, God, show us your glory. God, I pray that you would keep us from grumbling. God, forgive us from, for grumbling, for grumbling against others, for grumbling against spouse or children or circumstances or life. God, please, God, show us this morning. Show us so clearly that, that you are for us, God, that we, we would be sustained in the wilderness. God, that you would give us everything we need for each day. Father, I just pray for those that are in the wilderness right now, for those encountering hardship and trial and pain and suffering. God, please sustain them with yourself, God. Carry them. Show your glory. Father, draw us to yourself this morning. In Christ's name, amen.